well, greetings from McPherson, Kansas. Uh, people who see it always say McPherson. I'll just give you a tip. I learned it the hard way. They will always tell you there's no fear in McPherson. So they will wear that one out. And so I'll go ahead and warn you. Uh, I had never heard of McPherson, Kansas before I moved there. Uh, like Blake said, originally I was born in Macon, Georgia, lived in a tiny little town outside of Macon. Met Blake in God's providence the day after I became a believer. Um, I, I knew of one person at the, sta- at the campus of Valdosta State University that took their relationship with the Lord seriously. It was Blake. We had never met, so I ran a long ways, literally ran, uh, to almost tackle him. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we met then and have never lost uh, communication with one another. It's been, it's been great. I just want to encourage you guys as a church. Um, I, my relationship with the Lord has been blessed by your pastor, um, I know Jesus better because of people like Blake and especially because of Blake. And so it's a blessing for me when I talk to him and I hear of things that he's gone through in life to know that there's people here um, who are caring for him. The Lord cares for him through you. And so just as one of his friends, I, I'm glad to hear of your church and what's going on and to be here and be able to bring the word to you this morning is a blessing that's not lost on me. And so I'm thankful to be here this morning, and let me pray one more time, and then we will turn to God's word together. Father, I ask briefly that you would make much of Christ, that you would take my foolish preaching and show your wisdom through the word in these pages and through the word of your son. It's in his name we pray, amen. Nowhere does the Christian religion come into sharper conflict with the modern world and its insistence that truth exists and may be known. Truth is rooted in the nature of God. That's how Pastor Terry Johnson begins his discussion of what we'll talk about this morning. When we talk about God being the true God of truth, if you can remember that phrase, you'll remember the sermon's point. God is the true God of truth. Pastor Johnson is right. The truth has fallen on hard times because people's thoughts on God have fallen on hard times. We live in a world where truth is not viewed like it once was. In our day, truth is decided on by the majority. Truth is determined by votes. Truth is determined by opinions, feelings. Everyone wants to stay away from this idea of truth. Some people don't mind using it as long as they get to use that first person personal word, the my truth in front of it. They talk about my truth and they talk about your truth. And you can never say anything wrong about me and my truth because that's me and my truth. I don't pick on your favorite ice cream flavors. You don't pick on my truth. Again, it's mine, it's not yours. If you do come against me and my truth, then I'll just call you a bigot, a religious fanatic, a fundamentalist, or a Nazi and all that kind of stuff. Just a tip, if everyone's a Nazi, no one is, just to let you know. It's this truth of my, I mean, it's this plague of my truth that ends up being used to justify things that were once thought out of the question. That a a, a guy, a 36-year-old dad of four could eventually identify as a, a woman and demand that you treat me and talk to me like I am. Again, just because I have the body of a man doesn't mean I'm any less of a woman than any other woman, and you have to affirm me of that. And you may laugh at this, but this is serious. It says the same thing about the truth that I'm a cat. You look at me and see me as a grown man. 
What if I say I'm a cat and I demand that you put a litter box in my office? I, I command that you talk to me in meows. There are people in our church at daycares having to go through that, having to talk to kids that will only bark back at them because their parents have taught them that they can identify as an animal. This is really happening all over our country. And again, I, I get the immediate you know, response of giggling. I, I do it too. I, I get it. But then you pause for a second and you think, not only is this insanity, it really is heartbreaking insanity. People living so uh, uh, dis- uh, disassociated with reality that they would lose something as basic as just who they are. This is what happens when you refuse to affirm that God is the true God of truth. And as disciples of Jesus, if you're going to not only persevere in this kind of a setting, but you're also going to make more and mature disciples, then you're going to need to be clear on this, that truth exists and it is determined and revealed by God alone. You've got to make sure in your own bones right now that that is true or else you will fall. Again, to do this, uh, you're going to have to have a solid understanding of what truth is. And so as I've read different things, as I've listened to different people, as I've tried to figure out what's the best summary I can give you, as we move forward in the sermon, when I talk about truth, the, the pithiest way I can say it is truth is reality. That's what truth is. It's reality. True words are words that match reality. True thoughts are thoughts that match reality. Truth is reality. And as creatures and as sinning creatures, we can get reality very wrong. Maybe you're dealing with partial knowledge. You just didn't know everything. Maybe you're dealing with an incomplete perspective. Maybe you're being deceptive or lying. But there are so many ways that you can misunderstand and misconstrue the truth. And all of that goes back to the idea that truth is reality. And that's the definition I'm going to use moving forward as we go through each point. And again, we've got the basic phrase, God is the true God of truth And I want to break both of those down for you. The first point I want to walk us through is this idea that God is the true God. Now, again, I don't want to lose you. Um, God is the true God of truth. That's the main idea. But when we say God is the true God, when we look at this first point, historically, we've, we've talked about that in three ways. When you say, no, the God of the Bible is the true God, there's three ways we've historically meant this as Christians. Number one, we mean that God is genuine. God is the real God, not a false God. Again, back during the gold rush in California, miners, they would go and they would dig and they would risk everything they had. And some of them would find this stuff that would shimmer and shine. They would find stuff that looked like gold. They would find stuff they thought was gold, but they found out fast that it was not real gold. It was what's called fool's gold. And when it came to fool's gold, no matter how convinced you were that that was gold, no matter how many people supported you and said, yeah, that is gold, When you risked everything on that, you lost everything because that gold isn't determined by your belief that it's gold. That gold isn't determined by friends who affirm you that that's gold. That gold is determined by the reality, is it gold or not? This is the first way we understand the statement that God is the true God, that he really is God. As opposed to false gods that exist, and I put exist in quotes because the Bible's clear there's only one true God. At the same time, Because of our fallen nature as humans, we invent other lowercase g gods that don't really exist, but the Bible talks to them sometimes as if they do. 
Again, the Bible's clear, the one true God exists as three divine persons. John 17, 1, Jesus calls his Father the only true God. John 14, 6, Jesus calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. And then John 15, 26, Jesus calls God, God the Spirit the Spirit of truth, making it clear that Father, Son, and Spirit are the three persons of the one God who's real. He is truth. But again, that doesn't stop people from making up their own gods. You are already listening to Jeremiah 10. Let's turn back there in your, I may slip up and say pew Bible. Uh, I have pew Bibles at our church because uh, we have pews. So chair Bible, uh, we'll go with that. Pocket Bible, whatever you refer to the blue one. I'll give you the page number. It's 371. We'll go back to Jeremiah 10. So thankful to hear it read. So thankful to hear it prayed through and the thoughtfulness that goes into that. Just listen again to what the Lord says through Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10, page 371. It says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the ways of the nations. So again, remember the temptation, like Pastor Blake said, the temptation is for God's people to adapt their thinking of God from the nations rather than from God. Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens because of the nations uh, that the nations are dismayed at them. Verse 3. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of the craftsmen. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails, and it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. Those poor little gods can't even exist on their own, much less do anything or say anything, which I'm convinced is what makes idols so much more appealing. Because you know what false gods say? What their creators say they say. You bump into this as you're witnessing today. You have someone you're talking to, and they assume they're not an idolater because they don't bow down to anything, right? I don't have little statues. I don't get on my knees and bow down. So I'm not an idolater. But their idolatry comes out in the statement they make like, well, my God would never do blank. My God would never say that's wrong. My God would never tell you who to love. My God would never send you to hell. And I hear that, and to their shock, I go, I agree, because your God doesn't exist. <laughs> you made him up. <laughs> of course your God wouldn't. Again, you created that God, and so guess who gets to speak for that God? God says the gods that they make up are mute, but we hear false gods speaking all the time. It's because their creators speak for them. Our God is the creator who speaks to us. Again, this is the true God. Look back at verse 6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones on the, of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting God. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations can endure his indignation. 
This is what we mean that God is the true God, that he really exists. Jeremiah says, this God, Yahweh, is the true God. And this is the God who not only exists, but he'll bring shame on all the idols and the idolaters when he comes to judge the peoples. All because he's the one true God. That's the first way we mean God's the true God. The second way we mean that is that he knows the truth. You can say my God's the true God because he exists. And you can say my God's the true God because my God knows what truth is. All of his thoughts are true thoughts. As the creator, God knows all facts because he calls them to be. God knows the future because he decreed it would be what it will be. In the Isaiah 40 to 48 section where God puts himself on trial and says, let me show you why I'm the real God. One of the things he points out is he knows not just the past, but he can tell you why it happened the way it happened. It's because he's the one true God. He is the God who never forgets. He never needs updating. He knows everything with perfect accuracy. There's never discrepancy between reality and God's thoughts. There's never uh, an ounce of misleading or deception in what he says or what he knows. God never deals with incomplete knowledge. Now again, as creatures, we are finite. God is infinite. Our understanding and knowledge is able to err. You guys don't even know where McPherson, Kansas is. I don't blame you, again. Your knowledge is able to increase. Now you've met someone from there. Your knowledge is able to decrease. You'll forget me in a week. At no point have you ever or will you ever know thing. And just to clarify, that's true even in glorification. Glorification is where you'll cease to know things wrongly, but you don't start knowing everything. The finite doesn't become infinite in glorification. My knowledge can be all right, but still not omniscient, all-knowing. We need, as creatures, someone outside of us to talk to us and tell us what reality is. This limitation is compounded when you throw in the fact that we're also sinners. So often, as fallen creatures, we take incomplete knowledge and we twist it. Again, maybe you twist it not knowing you're dealing with incomplete facts, not, not knowing that you don't know everything. Maybe you twist it because you're trying to make yourself feel better or maybe you're trying to deceive other people. There's all sorts of other motives that may be only known to God, but lies and deception fill your heart and they come out of your mouth naturally since the fall, but never for God. God has all knowledge. He has perfect knowledge and he has infinite perspective and he's never ever been in need for anyone to inform or correct or redirect him. 1 John 3.19 puts it bluntly. It says, God knows everything. And this knowledge is intensely personal, as you can see in Psalm 139. We won't read it right now, but at another time, go back to Psalm 139 and just look at how personal the psalmist is. God knows everything, and that includes the, the, the stars by name, but it also includes you, and he knows your words before they even come to your tongue. God knows all of it, down to the very motives of your heart that sometimes slip by you unnoticed. That's why 1 Corinthians 3, 5 talks about the judgment that's coming, and it says that God will bring to light the things that are now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. God is the true God, meaning he's the real God, and God's the true God, meaning he knows the truth. Thirdly, the, the way that we mean that is God reveals truth. So my God not only exists, he's the true God, but he knows truth, he's the true God, and he reveals truth, he's the true God. 
Just like his thoughts and reality perfectly align, so also God's words and reality perfectly align. When God speaks, you never have to wonder if he knows what he's talking about. You don't have to wonder if he's ignorant of something or would he say something different if he had just known blank? Again, you don't have to wonder if God's deceiving you. At least three explicit times, God has told you he can't lie. So when we say things like, well, God can do anything, be careful. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Titus 1, 2, God is the one who never lies. Our God knows everything perfectly and he speaks and reveals everything perfectly. This is part of what John was getting at when he said that God is light. Go to page 591 in your chair Bible, 1 John 1. 1 John 1, page 591. It was so easy for me to read 1 John 1 and hear that God is light and associate that with moral qualities. And that is true. I'm not, I'm not taking that away. But there's a connection that John makes with light that we sometimes forget. 1 John 1, notice what verse 5 says. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and only light, no darkness at all in him. And while the, there are moral implications that John gets into in his letter, notice the link of light and truth in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, this God of light, while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. So the implication here is if God is light and you say you know God, then you walk in truth. Verse 7, but if we walk in light, in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, notice again this connection with truth. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Truth and light go hand in hand, and so when God says through John here that God is light, one of the things he's emphasizing is he is truth. There's no darkness in God. There's no darkness coming from God. Light can't give birth to darkness any more than a cat can give birth to a zebra. It just, it's never going to come from it. God is light and in him is no darkness, so no darkness comes from him. God is the one who really is. God is the one who knows everything perfectly and God is the one who reveals everything perfectly. There is never a difference between who God should be and who God is. There's never a difference between what reality is and what God knows. There's never a difference between what reality is and what God says. That's what we mean by God is the true God. So when I tell you to remember that our God is the true God of truth, we mean that true God part in those three ways. Getting us to the last part of that phrase, of truth. God is the true God of truth. And this is where the rub really starts to come against the culture that we live in and even our own sinful hearts. Because God is truth, that, therefore all reality is rooted in that true God. And all reality is true because of that true God. God alone establishes what reality is. He alone reveals truth. Again, I'm, I'm trying to set this up for you in your head that things are true because God said them that way, made them that way. We are creatures, not creators. When you learn things that are true, all of you in here know at least something that's true, right? You knew where to assemble this morning. That was true, so you're here. You had to learn that. 
that fact was outside of you and you had to go get it. And you learning that didn't make it true. It was true and you learned it. That was the relationship. You study, you learn, and you discover truth. But God speaks and it is true because he established it so. Truth is not determined by you or me or political movements or the rise and fall of nations. Truth's not determined by current opinions, celebrity culture, family traditions, or whatever else we credit with revealing truth. God alone establishes truth. God alone determines what truth is, what reality is. And God alone speaks perfectly to what reality is. That means if your truth, again in quotes, isn't the truth, it's irrelevant. One pastor said it this way. He said, you may have a personal view of gravity, but if it doesn't match the true view of gravity, it's not only irrelevant, it's harmful to you. And if that message starts spreading to others, and so they're believing lies about gravity, you're helping them harm themselves also. Again, we are creatures, not creators. We receive knowledge. We don't establish what's true. Again, this is the garden bed of error that's filled with personal truths that this new normal has emerged. To go back to the examples I talked about earlier, something as simple as just biological makeup People talk these days about being assigned a certain sex at birth. And I want you to see how when people talk that way, notice that they will use that authority to assign of everyone in the room but God. The doctor grabbed a baby, looked, and assigned. The parents agreed and assigned. Later, the child grows up and discovers itself and assigns. At no point was God ever consulted as to what was actually assigned in the womb. Again, all of this is built on this idea that truth is in us or determined by us or some creaturely authority with truth, but not in the scriptures. God made them male and female. God establishes truth. He establishes reality. He's the one who assigns you to be who and what you are. He assigns that in your mother's womb. And a rejection of something as basic as that leads to not just a life of delusion, but a life of pain. You're constantly living against the instructions that you were created to live with. That's what happens all around us. And again, it's heartbreaking. This explosion of transgenderism that's going on. Again, unless I'm missing something, this is new. We've had confusion over things before, but never have I, I ever heard of people being so convinced that then the medical field will help you get to who you think you are and people don't want to call out the idea that the people who are most for these surgeries are the people who make the most money off these surgeries because you've just signed up for lifelong uh, care from them. Again, the world lives in denial of reality and it's wreaking havoc over everyone buying into its deception a life where there's no foundation for anything and it's ultimately because they refuse to love the truth, the true God who is the God of truth. When God created, he created a real world, not a mirage. When God speaks, he speaks with clear propositional statements that can be understood. God can be quoted. His, his words can be parsed and diagrammed. But sin perverts this. And so while Adam needed revelation from God as a creature before the fall, how much more do we need it now after the fall as fallen creatures? Sin has come into our lives and into our world, and sin thrives on deception. Go to page 581, Hebrews 3. 
page 581, Hebrews 3. This has been a passage that just over the last few years has, I've returned to it over and over and over again in our church's context. Hebrews 3, page 581. Verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest... So again, I would imagine in the last month of your life you haven't used the word lest unless you read Hebrews 3 out loud. Uh, We don't use that word. The idea is or else, okay? So take care... Or else, there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Well, you say as a believer, I don't, I don't want to have an evil, unbelieving heart, so how do I take care? Look what it says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But, here's how you take care, exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin lies. Sin deceives That's how you turn into a willing rebel in this insane war with God that you will never win. Sitting here in this moment right now, you know, I would never pick a fight with God. And then you go out and you listen to the world, the flesh, and the devil, and all of a sudden sin sounds like a good idea. It deceives you. In his book on the excellencies of God, I referenced Terry Johnson earlier. He said this. He said, sin misrepresents reality, persuading its victims that to not indulge in vice, I'm sorry, that to indulge in vice is no big deal. And that there will be no consequences. So just, again, everyone has thought that in this room at some point. This isn't that bad. And it's not going to be that bad when I do it. He goes on, he says, Sin seems to offer unparalleled excitement and reward. Convinces people that it may safely be indulged. And then this last one, he says, And it convinces you that it indeed would be foolish to miss out on the opportunity. Again, sin is deceptive. As an unbeliever, your heart is deceptively thick. It's skilled and misleading you. And then even as believers who have been born again, you still have that flesh that loves to distort things. Again, this is a problem made worse when you consider all the deceivers that are in the world and creep into the church. They go unopposed as they deceive more people from the inside. Again, you're in a battle for truth. Your heart can't be trusted. Your feelings can't be trusted. Your friends and family members, as much as they may love you, they're not infallible. Only God is the true God. He's revealed in his perfect word, in his perfect son, the truth that you need to know that you understand it by his perfect spirit. Only God is capable of never leading you astray. Again, Satan, the world, and the flesh are that unholy trinity. They love to use deceptions to keep you immature as a Christian. They love to use deceptions to keep you against Christ as an unbeliever. Thomas Brooks, one of the Puritans, said it this way. He said, The enemy of your salvation has false glasses through which he misrepresents the Lord and his service to us. So he's presenting sin, the world, and the devil, particularly the devil in this quote. He's presenting him as glasses that you put on so you don't see anything right. He says sometimes he misrepresents God as so high that he doesn't notice what you do, whether it be good or evil. Sometimes he sets God's forth as so indulgent that any careless duty will please him and that neglect of his service will not mean much, if at all, It won't provoke him. 
How busy is Satan about us? When we come to appear before God, he endeavors to fill the mind with vain imaginations, to thrust violently the world into your heart, to make indwelling sin active and to hinder the actings of grace. Satan endeavors to abuse your faith, to beat down your hope and to dampen holy and spiritual affections. And I would imagine that you're sitting there going, yes, amen. God is the true God of truth. And I'm tired of this battle. I hate the way my flesh misleads me. I hate the way the world deceives me. I hate the way the Satan comes against us. I hate all of that. What do I do? God is the true God of truth. How do I respond to this? And that's what I want to wrap up our time with. I want to finish by walking you through your response to the true God of truth. Because again, it's one thing to acknowledge, yeah, Scripture says that. Yeah, that's true. But again, we want to put shoes on that and say, what do you do in response? So for our final section here, look at how we respond to the true God of truth. And again, like all good theology, I have five points for you. Just showing my cards, but anyway. (laughs) Again, gleaning from Brother Johnson's work. Number one, when it comes to your response to the true God of truth, express your need for the truth. Express your need for the truth. The first thing you can do is not go get it. The first thing is that you do is not to jump up and grab books and go study and talk. It's first and foremost, express you need wisdom. You don't know everything, and not everything you know, you know rightly. Recognize that not just from your experience, but from God's word, especially that your heart is naturally deceived and full of folly. Confess and agree with God that you are prone to error and deception, that you in Adam were born with a mind that's Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and desperately sick. It's one thing to say, yeah, that's humanity's problem. I'm telling you to say that's my problem. That's your natural heart. Even if you've been born again, you have received a new heart from God, but you still stand in need of God to speak and give wisdom from his word so that you know what a life of happiness and righteousness and truth is. So you're acknowledging that wisdom lies outside of you. I need wisdom. I don't look inside for this. I don't look around me for this. I look up. Technically, I look in the book for it. No other response is going to last. You may leave here saying, you know what, I'm going to do my best to know truth. But if you're not really convinced you need it, that will fizzle out. It'll die. And so start here. Look at God's word and see what it says about you as a creature, as a fallen creature, as a redeemed creature. Even as you're being renewed in Christ, learn what God says about your need for truth. Because again, your flesh, the world, and the devil, they're going to do their best to make you think you don't need this. They're going to do everything they can to present sin as freeing and truth as limiting and enslaving. Again, these are some of the lies that they'll do. They'll say holiness is suffocating. Humility, well, that'll make you a doormat. You don't want to be a doormat. Well, if you follow scripture, you won't really be the real you. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and I want you to finish it for me. And the truth will set you what? Free. By faith, we've got to know that freedom is found in truth, not lies. According to God, it's actually ignorance and error that enslave you. 
Imagine someone getting a smartphone for Christmas, having never seen one, never heard of one. They ask for a phone, and you hand them this little mini computer. So they are completely ignorant as to how this thing works. They refuse to ask questions. They refuse to look at tutorials. They read no instructions, and they claim to be free in their use of their iPhone. It's like, man, you don't realize how enslaved you actually are, and it's due to ignorance. If you would just ask questions and consult the manual, if you would listen to the people who produced this thing to tell you how it works, you could be so freed in how you use it. Again, that would be a good illustration of how truth actually frees you. Wisdom, insight, and knowledge give you abilities that you don't have when you're ignorant and deceived. Knowing the truth is the way to freedom, Jesus says in John 8. Ignorance is what limits you. An ignorant person is severely limited in doing whatever they're trying to do. You take sports or music. Again, I'm not trying to pick on anyone in this room, but an ignorant piano player is severely limited and never enjoyable. They may share your last name, but you're just being kind to them. It's like, you know, I would love if you would learn to play that a little better. One guy compared the futility of ignorance to digging for gold in the wrong place. He said, look at these people that they don't know there's no gold below there. And so they've been putting all their time and energy and effort and years into digging, clueless that there's actually none right there. So they'll get to the end of their life, they'll get to the end of their efforts, and it'll be completely fruitless. All because they didn't have the knowledge that they needed. That's how ignorance and error actually enslave you and cause your life to be fruitless and vain. Truth frees you. Truth allows you to have a life that's meaningful. Truth sets you free to live like you were created to live, and it teaches you what it means to, and looks like to fear the Lord. So truth is what you need, and start there. Number one, express your need for the truth. Secondly, explore the truth. Assuming you know you need truth, explore it go get it and I don't mean explore it like travel the world I don't mean explore it by go to heaven I mean open this book that this truth right here is what God has given us to give us what we need as far as reality dig into the book that God has provided it's sufficient for life and godliness able to equip you for every good work and I remember when I became convinced of the sufficiency of scripture I remember how freeing it was to realize when I stand before God in judgment, he will not require anything of me that this book couldn't prepare me for. There is nothing that God expects of you that this book doesn't prepare you for. Again, remember as Christians, we are disciples. I've been telling our men's Bible study, again, this is, I'm, I am a Christian, okay, uh, but that word's only used three times in Scripture. Twice, it's negative. There's only one positive use, and that's Peter, where he says, if you suffer as Christians, the more common term with Paul as in Christ or saints, Jesus' most common term was disciple. Disciple is a student. So remember, as a Christian, you are a disciple. Jesus said, as disciples, go make more disciples, make mature disciples. And the idea of a disciple being a student is you dig in and you learn. You don't just learn from Christ, but Ephesians 4 phrases it in this odd way where you actually learn Christ. He is the one that you're learning from, and he is the one you're learning. He's the teacher into whom you're being conformed. John 13, 13 says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right. So am I. 
Jesus is your teacher. He's given you a book. When God spoke through the apostles and prophets, remember, he didn't speak through actors and sculptors. When God spoke, he had it written down in a book with words, not a script for a play, for a DVD, or anything to watch. Christianity has always been and will always be a reading and listening religion because that's how God speaks to us through his written record here in the Bible. We live in a culture that loves images over words, and I think you should expect that because images are so much more subjective than words. I'm not a fan of art. I just, I, I just have never grown up in a world where I appreciate it. I like fried food, firearms, football, things like that. I just, I get it. People love it. But I promise you, if I'm looking at a painting, I don't, I don't know how to get to what the author was thinking, especially if you look at somebody like Picasso, like how he passed the art class, I don't know. If my kids drew that, I'd be concerned. Like, do you know where a nose goes? And so I'm looking at paintings and we can't talk to each other and go, let's decide we know for a fact what the artist was thinking. I may focus on a wrong part and go, man, he was really emphasizing that duck. And it's like, well, no, it was the guy down here. No, it was the house on fire. No, it was the, and we're just all over the place. Art is so subjective and I, it's no wonder to me that people today love artistic imager, images and, and media presentations of truth. They're not so much of a fan of a book. Words are clear and specific, and I read it, I said it earlier, but words can be quoted. God doesn't speak to you in feelings. He speaks to you in a black and white text where you can put your finger on it. Words can be diagrammed. God speaks in specific, concrete ways. So as a disciple of Christ, a student of Christ, you study Christ by studying his book. Now, again, you may say something, and I get this a lot where I'm at, um, you know, I just don't like studying. I was never good in school. I don't expect to ever be much of a reader. Maybe your specific excuse varies from that, but you are going to, for the rest of your days, face a temptation to avoid the hard work of studying. God knew that when he gave you a book. Your flesh, the world, and the devil, I keep mentioning those three because you need to be very aware of them. They love for you to remain ignorant. They love for you to just stay deceived. Know nothing more, and they will have a field day with you. When you're tempted to become lazy in your study, I want you to remember these words from William, William Gurnall, another one of the classic writers. He says, Love to God will make the soul inquisitive to find out what is near and dear to God. Let me read it again. Love to God will make the soul inquisitive to find out what is near and dear to God. He's basically saying if you love God, you want to know him and know what he likes. If you love God, you want to know him and know what he hates. There's no way for you to do that if you keep the book closed, if you keep your ears closed. So again, you may express your need for the truth, but then you have this idea of, you got to go get it. For that, turn to Proverbs 2 with me, page 304. Proverbs 2, page 304. A lot of times, and this is my subjective experience, <laughs> Growing up, I was trained, if you want to know something from God, just pray about it, and he'll tell you. As if 
you just ignore the teacher all semester and then the exam comes and you go, can you tell me an answer here? And the teacher comes by and whispers, it's C. It's like, yeah, why are you guys studying so hard? They'll tell you the answer every time. That's not how God presents it in scripture. When James tells you to pray for wisdom that comes from above, that's not a prayer that God's just gonna zap wisdom into your brain. It's Lord, open my eyes to the things you've revealed so I can get wisdom from here. Look at the hard work involved with getting wisdom in Proverbs 2. Notice this. There's, I think, eight. Let me see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Look at Proverbs 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight, if you raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures, then... If, 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 then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Our flesh tempts us to bypass those eight things and just, just give me the fear of the Lord, Lord. Just, just tell me how to know you. There are no shortcuts to this. Again, you want to know God? That's great. That is a sign of being born again. What I can tell you from Proverbs 2 is roll up your sleeves and dig into his word. Jesus promises in Matthew 20, I mean 11, 29, that if you will learn from him, what did he promise us? He says, then you will find rest for your souls. The hard work of studying God in the scriptures results in rest for my soul. I can't find any, any way else. Truth frees you. It gives you rest. So explore the truth. And secondly, I'm sorry, express your need for the truth. And secondly, explore the truth, leading us to this third response, embrace the truth. Express your need for it, explore it. When you find it, embrace it. Meaning, it's meaningless to know you need it. It's meaningless to find it. You can sit in here Sunday after Sunday and hear sermons. You can have your eyeballs run across words, sounds hit your eardrums, and if you don't receive it, it's meaningless. You've got to actually, by faith, receive the truth that you're hearing and seeing. Just because you know you need it and have heard it doesn't mean you're receiving it. James warns us that hearing without listening is something you don't want to do. The idea of the warning is it's entirely possible to do that. Again, just because your eyeballs have seen truth, just because your ears have heard truth, doesn't mean it's taken root in your heart. So you can't leave faith out of this equation. God is the true God of truth, and we trust what that God says. And when we trust what that God says, that's when we actually start to see with the eyes of our heart, Ephesians 1 talks about. That's what faith is. Faith is sight. Again, when we see God's word is true, God uses that, we read that in 1 John 1, remember, to be the light that shows us the way of life. The imagery is meant to you for you to see darkness in you, darkness around you, unless you have the light that God has revealed shining. Again, it's into this dark world that God sent the light of his word as a lamp unto your feet, Psalm 119, but it's also into this dark world that God sent the light of his son so that you would embrace him by faith, trusting him to secure for you all you need to be right with God. But that's not where faith stops. 
Again, by faith, we embrace the word of God in the pages of scripture. By faith, we embrace the word of God who is the savior. And that's how we see in life when everything else is engulfed in darkness. That's how we see in life when everything else is being deceived by wrong thinking. This is how we discern good from bad and wise from foolish. Not internally, not familially, not with our friends, not from our culture, but from God. Again, you've got to know in your heart that God never lies, he never misleads, he never deceives, he never makes an error. When God promises that your sins will be removed as far as the east is from the west, you know he's telling you the truth because he can't lie. When God says in judgment you'll stand before me as righteous as my son is, you know that's true because he can't lie. And what I'm advocating for is extend that same faith to every other word in the scripture. You know that no one's ever trusted Jesus to their harm. Why do we think it's harmful to believe the other words from God? Again, that's the faith that we live with. That's the faith we walk by, knowing that God alone has infinite knowledge. God alone has perfect insight. The one who created and named the stars knows the secret motives of your heart. He knows everything perfectly and his words are perfect and worthy to be trusted. Remember John 6, 29. Notice how this this flow happens. John 6, 29. This is the work of God that you believe or trust in him whom he has sent. Jesus declares the chief work of God that you need to perform is to trust God. If believing in God is the chief act of obedience that gives fuel and gives rise to all the other acts of obedience, then you need to know the chief act of sin is disbelief. That's what gives fuel to all the other acts of sin in my life. Again, don't fail to embrace the truth. Express your need for it, explore it. But again, those are meaningless if it just stays out on the table, if it just floats in your retina, if it's resounding in your eardrums but not penetrating your heart. If you do that, you'll notice that God changes you little by little from the inside out. That's where you'll start to see the fourth response, another E, just to make it easy. Emulate the truth, E-M-U-L-A-T-E, emulate the truth. This is the idea, emulation is the idea of copying something. This happens as you trust God more and more. God will cause you, now that you're internally convinced of what his word says, your life and thoughts start to copy that. This process is what we normally call sanctification. It's what God uses to transform you from the inside out. And he's transforming you into the image of his son. Jesus is the perfect representation of what it looks like to be completely consumed internally and externally with truth. Jesus had thoughts and desires that were only in accordance with truth. Jesus had actions and works and words that only We're in accord with truth. And that's what God's causing you to be little by little. Again, go to page 570, Philippians 2. Notice how this inside out language works in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, page 570. Philippians 2, page 570, verse 12. So we've talked about Christ's humility and then Paul says in verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, notice the command to you, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
the reasoning is in verse 13, because, or you read four, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. What is that work God's doing in you? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is not wanting to just change your actions. He's wanting to change your willing and your working so that the holy actions you read you're called to become the holy actions you want to do. And you've tasted some of that in your Christian life. There are things that you know are right, that please God, that you find yourself, well, I just, that was just what I wanted to do. There's other ones where you go, well, I know what I'm supposed to do here and I don't really want to do it. But that's what God is working in you and that's why you work it out. So as you explore and embrace the truth more and more, God is working in you to conform your insides to his will. He's changing you so that then when you go to work things out, you're working it from this position of truth. You're working out what God's working in. So again, internally, your heart is being more and more aligned with truth as you explore it and embrace it from Scripture. Then out of your life, you're emulating it more and more as you bear fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, gentleness, and self-control. Inside, you're growing in your knowledge and love for God so that outside, you're bearing fruit like patience, kindness, humility, and selflessness. That's the work God's doing in you so that the work outside of you is meaningful and not hypocritical and pharisaical. It's one thing to come to church. It's one thing to read your Bible. It's another one to want to do it. God's working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. After seeing your need to express the truth, uh, need, need to express your desire for the truth and explore it, embrace it, emulate it, I want to learn, go to the last one where you've learned to explain the truth. So express is the first one, explore. The second one, embrace, emulate, and lastly, explain the truth. In other words, just to put it simple, use your communication to communicate truth. Use the opportunities that God gives you to communicate, whether that be through words or social media or books or sign language or however it is you communicate, to communicate truth so that when people hear you speak, they don't think what's really going on. Things like fellowship are impossible if you're not honest. How are you doing? I'm fine, but really you're not. And then after six months, you go, man, no one cares about me here because no one's asking how I'm doing. I was like, because every time you seem to be doing pretty good and your smile looks appealing and convincing it's like, okay, they must be doing good. Internally, you're not. Well, it's that deception that's keeping you from growing. So just in a fellowship sense, speak the truth. But even in an evangelistic sense, speak the truth. God works in and through you, in the church and in the world, to bless you, to glorify himself, but God also uses you to get truth to other people. And again, I understand why people are sensitive with the phrase, I've been used. That's a terrible phrase normally. To think of someone using you, there's hardly anything more demeaning, degrading, than to think someone had their own agenda and with no care and concern for me, used me to accomplish a purpose. But when you talk about being used by God, that's on the other end of the spectrum. There's no greater blessing than to know the God who actually exists just used me. Because you can come up with a billion reasons he shouldn't use you, and he knows infinitely more. But by grace, he decided to do that. By grace, he decided to not only save you, but use you. 
It's part of his desire to help other people is through you explaining the truth. Explain the truth to your family. Explain the truth to your friends, your coworkers, acquaintances. Maybe it's somebody sitting right next to you in a plane or in line at the store and don't forget in the same row as you at church. God loves to mature his people through his people. That's what Ephesians 4 lays out. The ministry of the word requires people to communicate and it's the ministry of the word that God uses to mature his body. So maybe it's through a conversation before or after church. Maybe it's through praying with someone. Maybe it's through leading a Bible study. Maybe it's through preaching. Maybe it's in your congregational singing. All of these are ways that truth is being communicated by Christians to other Christians. And all of it is slowly but surely. Some of us move at rocket pace. Others of us use at glacial speed. But we're all moving (laughs) slowly but surely into the perfect image of Christ. Ephesians 4.15 says it this way, speak the truth in love. And at the end of the verse, it says, that's how you grow up in every way into Christ. As you seek to make more disciples, as you seek to make mature disciples, God has ordained to use your communication of truth to accomplish it the same way he's done that in your life. If you're a Christian in here, somehow the truth of the gospel got to you. If you're a growing Christian in here, somehow the truth of Scripture, of Christ, is getting to you. And what I'm telling you is God wants you to receive that. He also wants to use you to get that to other people as well. So use your communication to guard the truth. Use your communication to proclaim the truth. Use your communication to protect the truth. Be a mouthpiece for what we're all saying by faith is freedom-setting truth as we go to confront enslaving errors that fill our day. This is how you respond to the fact that our God is the God of truth, the true God of truth. God alone is the real God who perfectly knows and speaks reality. God speaks as the one who established and represents reality with no discrepancies or deceptions or errors. So again, as you express your need for God and his truth, as you give yourself to exploring and embracing and emulating and explaining the truth, be convinced from the inside out that this is the way of blessing in this world. The way of blessing is not listening to your flesh, not listening to the world, not listening to the devil. They will promise you things that you long for. God actually delivers them. And living in light of this, promoting God's truth as you seek to make more mature disciples is the way that God created you to live in his church. So again, I want to end our time by praying and asking God to give us the grace we need in these things. But before we pray, I want to remind you, when we ask God for things like this, remember what Jesus said. Which one of you, though being evil, if his son asked for this gift, would give him a terrible gift? And his point is, God is a good father who loves to give good gifts. So we've just heard, for however long it was, that God wants us to be convinced he's the true God and the God of truth and then respond appropriately. We know that's what God wants and then we go to him in prayer and it's like, is he really gonna do this in my life? And by faith we go, yeah, he wants to do it more than you want it to be done. So let's end our time by praying for God's grace to help us in these things. Father, we have heard a lot this morning just thinking through the passages and points, the message. I pray that you would instill in our hearts, that you would convince us that you are the true God, that we wouldn't be deceived by idols that are presented to us from the world, idols that we're tempted to fashion in our own image, 
idols that we're tempted to cling to, or even, like Pastor Blake was saying, the mixing of different religions to serve some God who doesn't exist. Help us to come to you through your truth to be convinced that you are the real God. You are the God who knows truth and the God who reveals truth. Help us to be convinced of that. As we go into a world, as we live with a flesh, and as we're around the work of Satan and his demons, help us to cling to your truth. That in our sober thinking, in moments like this, we know that the world, the flesh, and the devil have nothing good in store for us. But then we leave here. We get into our normal way of living. And the things of Christ grow dim, and the things of the world actually start shining. So help us to be convinced of this, but also to live with that conviction. Help us to always express our need for more truth, that we would give ourselves to exploring more truth. And when we see it, we embrace it by faith, so that as we embrace it, it starts to conform us to the image of Christ. We would emulate that truth. And, and then out of our life and out of our mouth comes the truth that we've been transformed by. Help us to be faithful disciples and, to faith, and faithful disciplers. And please remind us over and over again that when we fail in these ways, that you are ready and willing to forgive us. Christ was sent to pay for all of our sins, not just before you call us to yourself, but even as your people, the sins that we commit, I pray that we would trust him to atone for those also. Help us to trust and know that you will always keep your promises. No matter how much we stumble and fall here in this time of sanctification, you have guaranteed that we will be with you forevermore because we've come to Christ, not because we have become so Christ-like. So help us long to be more like him while always trusting him as we go about that work. Thank you for the church that's here and I pray that you would bless them, that you would cause them to love Christ, that they would be convinced in their hearts that no other treasure compares to him. Nothing else in life is worth living for. Nothing else is compared to Christ that you would cause us from our deepest parts to know that he is the treasure of the universe and we will give our entire lives for him. Thank you for sending him and open our eyes to how great he is. It's in his name we pray, amen.